You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. I want to begin by asking you, how often do you think about resurrection living? How often do you find yourself trying to imagine what life will be like after you've been resurrected? This is an important question to ask because um, I think probably if we do think about what life will be like after Jesus comes again, what we tend to do is think about it in terms of relationships, right? You might dwell on the relationship you will have with those loved ones that have died uh, in the past and how you'll be uh, reconnected with them in some way. You might even dwell on what your relationship with God will be like. Uh, to seeing him face to face. We, we tend to dwell on these things in terms of their relational quality, but, but how often do you think about what it will actually be like to experience the new creation, to experience resurrected life? What will that be like? It's hard for us to conceptualize, uh, partly because most of us have grown up being taught a platonic view of the cosmos in which we kind of in this life have flesh and bones, but in the life to come, it's more of a kind of spiritual experience. We're kind of, as one Anglican priest described to me, we will be like a a drop of water absorbed into the ocean of God's love or something similarly terribly unbiblical as that. (laughs) We get a hint of what resurrected living new creation living will be like in this passage this morning. That's why it's so important for us to see it. And this meal is different from the five meals that we've looked at before because in this meal we find Jesus not in his earthly ministry but Jesus resurrected from the dead, eating with his disciples. And so it's really a profound passage for us to get our head around and there's a whole lot I want to do this morning uh, that comes out of this passage. I've got three points. Um, We're going to look at the hidden Christ, the written Christ, and the risen Christ, all right? So the hidden Christ, what's that all about? Let's have a look in chapter 24, verse 13 to 21. That same day, meaning the day that Jesus' tomb was found empty, That same day, two of them, two disciples, were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you were walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things, he asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we were hoping 
that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. So that's the context for the two meals we're going to look at today. I want to ask you a question. Maybe I'll ask the kids this first, all right? Kids, so just this is the bit where you listen to what I'm saying. What, if I asked you, or imagine this, an alien comes from outer space, lands in December, and he hears human beings talking about Advent. What would you tell him? What is Advent about? Any kids want to give me an answer? What's Advent about? Any adults want to tell me what's Advent about? There's got to be one person who knows what Advent is about. Yes. Say again. A calendar. Advent is about a calendar. Good answer. Advent calendar. Yep. What do you do with the Advent calendar? Just let me just. just. Countdown. Countdown to. Yeah. 25. Right. For Christmas, right? It's a countdown to Christmas. That's what it is. Any other answers from anybody? Advent? The waiting time. Interesting. Advent. Advent means coming. And what's interesting about Advent is... For most of church history, Advent has been a time to focus on the second coming of Jesus, not the first coming. Advent was, in all through church history, and if you want to look at the the Anglican uh, prayers, readings, um, services leading up to Advent, the focus is on the second coming of Jesus. So for us, in our experience, at least my experience... Advent is about focusing very much on the first coming of Jesus. It's about Christmas. And here's why we have different experiences. 500 years ago, the calendar for the year was set by the church. Today, our calendar is set by the marketplace, right? So if, if, if ep- economics are driving the calendar, what can you make more money out of? Thinking about Jesus' second coming or the first one, right? Definitely the first one. That's where the money is to be made. And so, and, and so the marketplace has driven the calendar, not just the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, but now, what are we, back in September sometime? It's the first time Santa pokes his head out. And so that's why the shift has, has happened. I'm not saying that Advent was never about Christmas. It was, but the focus was on the second coming of Jesus. And so if you went to someone 500 years ago and said, and, and you were talking about Advent, and you said, Advent, it, during Advent, we um, focus on Christmas, and it's mainly about opening little doors on a calendar and eating lollies. Right? They would say, what, where are you from? What are you doing? That, what we're doing, is the practice of very comfortable, wealthy people, right? Comfortable, wealthy people focus on, okay, now's the time for the gifts and the chocolate to come out. Desperate, tortured people focus on the second coming of Jesus, right? And you can see why. 
For them, the second coming is deliverance. For them, the second coming is liberation. It's new creation. Because we're really comfortable and wealthy, we want to focus on what we've got now. Feasting, presents, chocolates. We've got everything we want. Why would we think about anything else? The reformers 500 years ago referred to Jesus in in this present age, between his first coming and his second coming, they referred to him as the hidden Christ. Because they recognized that we live in this age called the now and not yet. It's now God, Jesus has come, he has inaugurated, inaugurated his kingdom, right? His kingdom is being built on this earth. It's building to a climax, which will be his second coming. So it's now, but it's also not yet. It's with us, but it's not in fullness. It's inaugurated, but not consummated. And so they wrestled with this idea that, yes, Jesus is ruling at the right hand of God. He's sovereign over all things, but he's also hidden from our sight. He's hidden from our daily experience. And so they referred to passages like Colossians 3, and we went through this in a couple of series ago, where Paul says, you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's a now and not yet passage. Yes, we are with Christ, united to him in every meaningful way, but yes, also we haven't yet seen him. We haven't yet been revealed with him in glory. And so during the now and the not yet, I just like, I, I just, can we just be real for a second and just acknowledge that during this time, during this age between his first coming and his second coming, we, we can sometimes think that Jesus isn't just hidden, he's missing. Right? He's not just hidden from our sight, he's missing in action. It can be easy for us to go through seasons of life and say, where are you? I'm told that you are ruling and reigning over all things. How come it doesn't feel like that at all? I need you to step into my room and eat a piece of fish with me. I need need you here now. And that's not just... An an honest admission of Christians today, it has been always the case. And that's why they had this period of looking forward to his coming again. For that very reason, because of the ambiguity of our current experience, yes, he's with us, but we really want him to be with us. And so you see that in these two disciples. It just jumps out at the page when you, when you think about it in these terms. In verse 17, they, they say that it says that they were discouraged. They looked discouraged. And in verse 21, they say, we were hoping. We were hoping that he was going to be Israel's deliverer. We were hoping. And isn't that just the cry of our hearts at different times in life? We're discouraged, and we were kind of hoping that Jesus would would show up and liberate us. And he hasn't. He's the hidden Christ. So the question is, what do we do then with that? If that's true of our experience, and it's not just me up the front here, you know, struggling every day with the reality of this now and not yet 
universe that we live in, if, it, if it's not just me and, you, and that kind of jives with you a little bit, then, then, then what do we do? What do we do with those feelings? What do we do with that experience? Well, a good question is, like, what, what would Jesus do? Or more accurately, what did Jesus do? What did he do with these two disciples? Discouraged, we were hoping. Let's see, the written Christ. I'm going to read verse 27 to 32 and then 44 to 48. See what he does. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near to the village where they were going and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening and now, is the, now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us, with us on the road, and explaining the scriptures to us? And then jump forward from the road to Emmaus to Jerusalem to the rest of the disciples, and verse 44 to 48, he told them, this is Jesus again, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written, the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So Jesus' way of dealing with the disappointment that these disciples were feeling, that, that, that Jesus had been taken from them, that Jesus wasn't the Messiah that they thought he would be, that he didn't do the kinds of things that they were expecting him to do. His response to that is to take them to the Word of God. It's to take them to God revealed in his Word. So we find ourselves in a very similar position. Advent is this period of waiting. For people like us who have never had to wait for anything, right, with a few exceptions, that's difficult, but it's good for us. It's a period of waiting for Jesus' second coming. It's, it's a period of waiting for the final unhiding, the final revelation of God. That's what we're looking forward to. In this, in, this, in this age, we struggle and wrestle with the, the fact of the hidden Christ, but what we look forward to is the final unveiling, the final unhiding. Last Sunday, I was out the front here after our carol service in the afternoon. This was getting into the evening, and me and my boy Judah were out the front there, and we were playing hide-and-seek, and, seek. and uh, I'm really good at hide-and-seek. I don't, I don't want to brag, but I'm just good at it, and, uh, and always have been, and... Um, 
And so he was hiding, he was seeking, and I was hiding, and I just, I got behind one of those trees out the back there and just got, got really, like, made myself into a tree and hid behind it, and then he was looking all around, and then there's a moment as a parent when you're playing hide-and-seek where your heart kind of breaks for the kid because he goes from being excited about finding you to despairing about the fact that you've gone forever, and that's, I just saw that change in his face, like, the rapture might have just happened, right, Dad? <laughs> He is not here. And, uh, and I just saw his face drop, and then he started to head inside to like, tell people that I was, in fact, gone forever. And so at that point, I yelled out to him. I said, Judah, I'm, it's all right, I'm here. And the, the change, his count, whole countenance changed, right? From, from worry to, ah, oh, it's okay. Daddy's here. What we're looking forward to, what Advent is all about, is a looking forward to the final unhiding of Jesus, revealing himself never to be hidden again. In the meantime, as we wrestle with the reality of the fact that he is hidden from us, Jesus directs us to his word. This is where God reveals himself to us. This is where we can find God. I'll just tell you, in how many years have I been doing this now? I can't, I don't even know. In all that time, uh, nearly 14 years, right? All that time of uh, pastorally caring for people, very often sitting down with people who feel like these guys feel. Discouraged, I thought he was going to be this, and he's not, right? In all of that time, one of the things, because of what Jesus does for them in this passage, one of the things I will ask the person who's feeling distant from God, feeling disappointed with God, one of the things I will always ask, and you can expect this, I will say, have you been spending time in the Word recently? And I promise you, very, very often, almost always, the answer will be, no, not really. And partially that's because the person feels disappointed and discouraged. They don't feel like reading the Bible. Partially, the reason they feel discouraged and distant is because they're not reading the Bible. It's here in God's word that he will reveal himself to us. Will he do it elsewhere? Yes. The heavens declare the glory of the God. Maybe you just need to go for a hike, all right? Through his people. Maybe you haven't been around church for a while or you're not part of a small group. That's why you might be feeling distant from God, right? But fundamentally, this is where God reveals himself. It's in his word. And so as we wrestle with the reality of the hidden Christ, he encourages us, go, see where I reveal myself in this age. It's in the very words of God. It is striking that the risen Christ, right, Having conquered death, having made a mockery of all his enemies, when he speaks to these two groups of disciples, he doesn't just speak words. He goes to God's word. He doesn't just say, this is how it is. He does a Bible study with them. That should tell us something about how we are to meet with God when we feel that he's been hidden from us. So there's the hidden Christ, the written Christ. Let's look finally at the 
the risen Christ. I want to read a little bit here, so, so stick with me. Verse 30 through to 43. It was as he reclined at the table with them, this is in Emmaus, that he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us? While he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us. That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven, his disciples, and those with them gathered together who said, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he'd been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. He said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? he asked them. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they were still amazed in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have something to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. The fact that the risen, reigning Lord Jesus standing there in in their midst with a resurrection body, the fact that he eats confirms what we've been seeing all along, all through the series. It confirms the fact that meals have eternal significance. Forget what you've been told. Food is not merely fuel. Food is more than fuel. Meals have cosmic significance. They have eternal significance. The risen Lord Eats. I love the way Tim Chester says it, all right? This is the last time you're going to hear from him unless you buy the book Meals with Jesus, and I recommend you do. It's a great book. Here's what he says. We got that quote there from Tim Chester. Aiden, you got that quote there, buddy? Tim Chester. That's the one. He says, The risen Christ eats. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And still the Son of Man eats. The physicality of Jesus is not cancelled by the resurrection. His humanity doesn't morph into some ethereal existence. In the heretical Gnostic Gospels, written centuries after the resurrection, the risen Christ is a ghostly figure. But in the true Gospels, he can be touched, he can eat, and he does so publicly. The resurrection of Jesus is the promise and beginning of the renewal of all things. Now, I hope 
that every shred of that heresy that most of us have imbibed, most of us have soaked in, the heresy that flesh is bad and spirit is good, the heresy that we have to deal with meat and bones in this life, but in the life to come, we'll all just be pure spiritually hovering around, right? That heresy, and the church named it a heresy, right? Something to be damned. I'm hoping that heresy has been squeezed out of you through this series. As we've, as we've delighted in the goodness of God in food and drink, meat and bones, as we've looked forward constantly to a new creation. This is just a little thing I'm doing. I'm, I'm, whenever I think to say the word heaven, I'm replacing it with new creation. That's not because the Bible doesn't use the word heaven. It does. But because in our minds, modern minds, heaven strikes us as this kind of you know, Philadelphia cheese ad experience, right? And so we need to get that out of our minds. What we're, what we're moving towards is new creation. It's blood and bones and flesh. I'm reading this book at the moment. It's a huge book called Dominion by a historian named Tom Holland. And he is outlining the, the I think the byline is the, um, the shaping of the Western mind or something like that. He's trying to figure out how does Western civilization think? Why does it think the way it thinks? And his argument as a non-believer is that Christianity is the foundation for the way that we think about the world. And in this book, he talks about the fact that a couple of hundred years after Jesus and after the first Gospels were written, there was this big influx of Platonic thought in the early church, and they were known as the the Gnostics. Their view was that flesh is bad, spirit is good, and that the, the gospel writers were mi- just misunderstood Jesus. The Gnostics believed they had special spiritual knowledge straight from God. You can see this in a lot of cults today. You, you guys think that way because you just, you, you know, you, you, you don't have the special knowledge that we've been given, right? And so they believed, yeah, Jesus, he never, before he died, he disappeared. And then it just looked like he died and it looked like he was risen, but really that was just a ghost Jesus because how can God really have anything to do with the flesh, which is so bad and evil and will be thrown away forever? That was a heresy. And it's a heresy that many of us just naturally believe. I remember talking to a very mature Christian in the church I grew up in who said to me that there was no way he could believe that eternal life would be a physical existence. He believed the gospel, the stuff about Jesus dying, forgiveness of sins and all that. He could not believe that heaven would involve this stuff. And yet we see the resurrected Jesus eats. That's a profound statement. Do you have anything here to eat? Is that what you expect the resurrected Jesus to say? Got anything here to eat? That's like high on his priority list. Yeah, we've got some broiled fish. What do you want to do with it? Pass it through your body? No, eat it. Chew it. Swallow it. Digest it, right? He took it and ate it in their presence. It's a statement. Friends, 
friends, if we're going to do Advent well, I'm not saying you can't do the calendar thing. We do the calendar thing in my house. I'm not saying it's not about Christmas. Yes, it's about counting down to Christmas. But if we're going to do the historical Advent well, looking forward, right, desperately yearning for the coming of Jesus, the way Paul describes it in Romans 8 is that that, 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 that desperate looking forward to the coming of Jesus is like a pregnant woman in labor, right? That's sort of, we got, we got Sarah here today and, you know, like, you know, it would be a really good sermon illustration if you could just go into labor, like, I'm going to snap my fingers and if you could just... No, didn't happen. All right. Well, she's past her due date, so it could happen. That, that's the way he talks about our advent looking for the second coming. It's like, it's like a, a woman in labor. It's that kind of level of anticipation and excitement, knowing that something great is about to be brought forth. And in the meantime, it's pain and suffering, but we're looking forward to that consummation. If we're going to do that well, if we're going to do the Advent thing well, if we're going to look for his coming again well, then we need to understand what we're looking forward to. What is it that's going to happen when Jesus comes again? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus in his resurrection is a first fruits of all that would believe in him. That means what happened to him is what's going to happen to us. Everything we see in Jesus is the first fruit of what's going to happen with us. He says at the final trumpet, when Jesus appears in glory, what has been sown perishable, our bodies sown into the ground, will be made imperishable. They'll be made new. The creation itself, though perishable in this age, will be made a new creation, never to perish again. We will live day by day in the resurrection, in the new creation. So that's what we're looking forward to at Advent. That's the reality that we're yearning for, that we will bodily not just live with Jesus, but eat and drink with him. Let me read for the last time. Until next year, by the way, where I plan to preach through the whole book of Revelation, verse by verse, middle of the year next year. Until then, I want to read for you Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 to 9. This is what God's people have been thinking of, dreaming about, yearning for, all through church history, heightened during the season of Advent. And here's what I want us to focus on as we finish. John saw this vision of what's to come. He says, I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like a waterfall, like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God The Almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. 
Then he said to me, right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Friends, if you are here this morning and have been adopted into God's family, then you are blessed. You are blessed every time you sit down to eat and drink. Blessed by the abundant, creative, merciful, and gracious provision of God in the food that you have. That's why we say grace. We recognize it's a good gift from God. And how much more blessed are you beyond all comprehension that you are not just invited to lunch today, but to the marriage feast of the Lamb, where you will sit with resurrection body, with all of God's people, the Lamb of God being honoured and praised for all eternity, and you will eat and drink in celebration of all that he has done. In the meantime, we wait. We wait for the advent. Let's do it well. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time that we've had over these six weeks to look at these meals of Jesus, each one of them profound. Each one of us, each one of those meals revealing to us just the goodness of food and drink. It's just good to eat. It's good to drink. It's a good gift from you. Also revealing to us your heart for people, particularly your heart for the poor, the ostracized, the sinners. Thank you and praise you, Lord Jesus, that you ate with them, revealing to us that you want to eat with us too, even us. Each of those meals revealing to us something about the cosmos, something about eternity. The fact that we will eat and drink with you in the new creation. Lord, give us a taste of it now and help us to yearn for it day by day. This is our great hope. The resurrection and consummation of all things. Lord God, even now as we stand and we sing your praises, give us a vision for that day when you'll make all things new and for that age where forever we will stand and sing your praises. Thank you, Lord. We thank you for all that's past and all that's yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen.